Good morning, Grace. Our scripture today comes from Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Siganoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was filled with his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of God. Good morning, church. We have come to the final chapter in this series, this Old Testament book of Habakkuk, from why to worship, from why to worship. Habakkuk is a prophet, 
uh, meaning he was called to speak for God. And yet, this book is unique in that it focuses more on him speaking to God and even wrestling with God. You see, Habakkuk is living in evil times. There was corruption and violence among his own people, and he's upset. And, and it seems like God is doing nothing. And so chapter 1 begins with cry, him crying out, How long, O Lord? Why, will you let, why do you let this happen and do nothing? And then, surprisingly, God answers him. And he says, I am going to do something. I'm going to send the evil Babylonians to, as a judgment for Israel's sin. And then Habakkuk says, wait, 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 that's not fair. That's worse. The, the solution is worse than the problem. You can't use a people more evil than us to punish us. And then he gets up on a watchtower and he says, I'm going to wait to see what God says. From why to waiting. Anyone who's ever had something wrong happen in life or, or look at what's going wrong in our world and says, you know what, that's not fair. We can relate to Habakkuk. He's waiting. And then God speaks again and, and, and tells him to write down this vision. And he says, listen, I am going to use the Babylonians. It's done. They're coming. I've ordained them. They're going to do my will. And yet they will ultimately be punished for their own sin, for their own evil. And he pronounces woes on Babylon and all those who do evil. And now we arrive at the final scene of this book, the final chapter Today's message is the joy of the Lord is my strength. Here's what we're going to see today. The circumstances have not changed for Habakkuk. Nothing's changed. He's not gotten deliverance. God didn't change his mind. Trouble is coming. Life is going to get harder, not easier. And yet Habakkuk ends up doing what? Worshiping the Lord singing. He finds joy in the midst of the trials. He learns, listen, he learns that it's possible to experience true joy even when everything in life goes wrong. And the question, the million dollar question is, how do we get there? Right? How do we get there? Why do you think the self-help books are, are, are a big industry? Everyone wants to know when life is bad, how can I feel good? But the Bible actually shows us there is a way. There is a way. Real joy, not fake joy. You don't grit, you don't, you don't grit it and bear it. You don't fake it till you make it. No, this is real. How do we get there? Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, shares a story, an account of an English missionary named Alan Gardner who was sailing in 1851 as a missionary to his kind of first stint to go. And they were sailing him and his crew past the southern tip of South America. And they, they're shipwrecked. And they're stranded. And they don't have supplies. And slowly the crew starves to death. And ultimately Gardner is the last one to die. And they found his journal next to his body. One of the last entries quotes Psalm 34.10, which says, The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then the last thing he wrote is this. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. What? It's insane, right? 
That's not humanly possible. Here's a man who's dying from hunger, far from home and his family. Everyone around him already has died. His hopes of reaching people with the gospel, his dream has died. And his last words are, I am overwhelmed with the goodness of God. How, how can you and I get there? How do we get to that place? We usually think that God is good when life is good, right? If you're healthy, if you got enough money in the bank, uh, if you're doing well at school, you think God is good. Right? Pastor Ray said this a couple weeks ago, kind of in jest. You find a good parking spot, praise God, God is good. And it's okay, you can praise God for that, right? But we, att- we tend to associate the goodness of God with the good things in life. If life is good, God is good. But what happens when life is bad? What about when everything goes wrong? Gardner, Alan Gardner reached a place where, with God where he experienced the goodness and love of God so deeply that it transformed his perspective, his very life, even when he was dying. His sense of God's goodness was not dependent on his circumstances. Do you want that? I do. I desperately do. I need that in my life. And Habakkuk shows us how, how even when nothing goes wrong, it's possible to experience real joy. Let me show you. Lesson number one, the first thing we see that Habakkuk is doing. Remember what the Lord has done. Remember what the Lord has done. Notice the first thing you see here in, in verse one. It says this is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionos. That's an unusual word. It's unusual to say. It's unusual in the Hebrew too. They're, they're, they're not quite sure exactly what it means, but they, they're pretty sure it's a musical term. It sort of sets the instructions on the tempo, sort of like sing this to the tune of Amazing Grace. And in case you're, you're still uncertain, at the end of verse 19, at the very end of this book, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. In other words, Habakkuk 3 isn't just a prayer, it's a song of worship. It's a song. Habakkuk is teaching us that in the midst of our doubts and our struggles, we can still sing. We can still worship the Lord. We tend to think, you know what? When things get better, then I'll worship. When things get better, then maybe I'll go back to church. When things get better, then maybe I'll get back into my small group. When things get better, then I can sing. No, that's not faith. Faith is worshiping even in the storm. One of the most important practices we can learn to help us keep going in the face of uncertain and evil times is to sing to God. To sing about God and to sing to God. Why do you think we sing in our worship services? Yes, the music sounds beautiful and it stirs our hearts, but even deeper, our singing is meant to help our remembering. Our singing is meant to help our remembering. Our singing is meant to fuel uh, this, this rest in us, to rejoice in the God who saves. Singing helps our remembering. Look at verse 2. I'm going to read this in the NIV. It says, Lord, I have heard of your fame 
ESV says, I've heard the report of you. In other words, I've heard of your fame in the past. I stand in all of your deeds. O Lord, O Yahweh, renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. What's he saying? Lord, I've heard of your power. I've heard of your miracles. He's saying, in other words, I remember them. I remember what you have done, but I'm not experiencing them right now. And so, Lord, renew them in our day. Do them again. He's remembering what God has done. I I don't know of another spiritual practice that has been so foundational to my walk as the discipline of remembering. Remembering. Memories are powerful, aren't they? Just think of just general memories. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I shared this with the, our GCS teachers a couple weeks ago. Um, I don't remember, a few weeks ago, we had this little game where you pull out a card as a family at dinner time, and it's kind of a discussion question, like, share this, tell this, your best memory. So we did that. We don't often do it, but we had it. We're like, oh, right, pull it out. And the card said, share one of your most favorite memories of the past year or just in life. And so each of us went around the table, one of my favorite memories of the past year, and so, you know, past year's been pandemic, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, man, it's been a horrible year. What are, how are we going to think of anything good? And one by one, starting with the kids, each of us shared something good that happened this past year, something we did as a family, something we experienced, something we were able to see or to do or just be together. And you know what? By the end of it, I realized, wow, we actually had some really good times. I thought this year was terrible. And it, and it many ways was. But I had forgotten and it just happened. I had forgotten something that happened just a few months ago. A few weeks ago. And we started laughing. And we started re- reminding. And then we started about memories beyond that. Remember when we took this trip? Remember when we saw this? Remember as a family we all got together and did this? And it, and it was encouraging. Memories are powerful, isn't it? When you remember something, it can, it can stir hope in you. It can stir joy in you. It can it's sometimes sorrow and comfort at the same time. Habakkuk in this chapter is remembering what the Lord has done. In fact, he does it in a dramatic way because verse 3 to verse 15, he's just recounting God's power and God's majesty in the history of the Israelites. In particular, he focuses in on the Exodus story which is the greatest act of God among his people. Why does he do this? Because remembering the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God stirs something in us. Just like remembering good times for our family stirred something in me. There, when, we, when I remember things, you can actually remember smells. You realize, you, you realize that? You can remember where you were if you had a certain smell or a certain thing you saw or a certain feeling or certain sounds, jog memories. Over and over and over again in the Bible, God urges his people to remember who he is and what he has done. It's all throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy 8, you're about to go in the land, Israelites. Remember who took you there. Remember who brought you out of Egypt. Remember when you got plants and vineyards that you didn't plant and houses you didn't build. Remember that I'm the one who brought you there. Remember that. Psalm 103, David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is with me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What's he saying? Don't forget, man. Don't forget, soul. And then he remembers specifics. Or maybe the greatest command, Jesus. We're going to celebrate this in just a few minutes. Do this, what? In remembrance of me. 
Remembering is not just a good idea. It's a, it's a command. It's a spiritual practice. And it changes us. Verse 3. Look what he remembers. He says, God came from Timon and, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. He's remembering the place where God revealed Himself to Moses at the burning bush and, and where He led them out of Egypt to enter into covenant with them. That was the area. He's remembering the very place. Not just what He did, but God, I remember the place. Right? It's like when I say, I remember Ocean City with my family. Yes, it's a good thing, but just the place itself is, is sort of sacred to us. Verse 5. He's recalling the pestilence and the plagues. That's how God delivered his people out of Egypt. He showed his mighty power. He showed that his power is greater than the false power of the idols of Egypt. Verse 9 and 10 and then verse 15, he's describing in poetic and vivid terms how God parted the Red Sea. God, are you, can you control the seas even? Are, are you, were, you up, were you upset with the oceans when you scattered the waters so that the Israelites could pass safely through? You see what he's doing? He's singing about the greatest rescue story that he's ever known. This is the greatest rescue story that ever, has ever happened up until this point. God's people were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. They experienced years of abuse and horrific living conditions and hard labor. And they cry out to God and the Lord hears their prayer and he comes down and he rescues them out of slavery and he shows his great power and his holiness and his grace all in the Exodus story. And Habakkuk is remembering what the Lord has done as a way of sustaining his faith and fueling his joy. So, what do you need to remember about God's character or about God's ways? What do you need to actively remember today? And I mean actively. You might need to write it down. You might need to begin a journal. You might need to start talking about with your family. Let's remember what God has done in our lives. Let's remember what He's done in our family. Are there ways that God has worked in your life personally that you need to remember as a way of strengthening your faith and fueling your joy? You have, listen, you have got to find a way to connect what you know about God and what He's done in the past to connect that to your present. And remembering is how you do that. Remembering is how you do that. Lesson number two. We don't just remember what the Lord has done. Habakkuk teaches us to accept what the Lord is doing. Look at verse 16. I hear... And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. This is Habakkuk's response to what he's been singing and hearing about from God throughout the book. This is, this is the final thing. This is, this is the culmination of it all. He says, my body trembles. The word body literally means his bowels. It, 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 he's literally has a stomach. I mean, his stomach's upset. He says, my lips quiver. He's crying. His legs are shaking like a leaf in the NIV. He can't even stand up. What is, what's going on? This is a visceral reaction to a revelation of God's majesty and His power. It literally shakes him to the core. You see, Habakkuk wanted to speak, and he wanted God to speak and do something. Right? Chapter 1, God, do something. Show up. And then God does speak and tells him what he's going to do, and he can't handle it. 
He's in awe of God. He trembles out of respect and reverence for God. He finally gets it. Neither he nor God's people would escape the coming judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. But he also finally realizes this, that God is fully in control. He he understands what the psalmist said many years earlier. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's coming to grips with this. It's like in in Narnia, in the Narnia series, Chronicles of Narnia. First book, right? The kids are, or or the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The kids are are entering Narnia and they're going to see Aslan, the great king of of Narnia. and And they're kind of afraid and they ask Beaver, well, well, is he safe? And the beaver's like, safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. We want a safe God. He's not safe. Anytime he shows up in the Bible, it's never a safe situation. But he is good. He's good. And that's the God we need. That's the God who is. And then look what he says next in verse 16. After experiencing this physical reaction, he says, yet, yet, if you underline or write in your Bible, I would circle that word, yet, highlight that word, yet, I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Yet, he says it twice in these verses here, again in verse 18, it's the most courageous word out of Habakkuk's mouth, yet. In chapter 1, he's demanding God to do something. He wants God to act now. But what do, we see, what do we see here? Not a change in circumstances, but a change in perspective. Yet I will wait quietly. He knows things are going to get ugly fast. People are going to die. The land is going to be destroyed. He can't understand any of it. But he also knows that the sovereign Lord is in control. He knows that the trouble and evil done by the Babylonians will come back on them. His judgment is certain. The word for wait here. I will wait quietly. It it, it evokes it. There's this this sense to it. It actually has a sense of deep-seated peace. It's really strange. He, he, He feels physically... A wreck. And yet, internally, he says, I'm okay, actually. I'm at peace. Why? He's remembering. He keeps remembering until he can get to the point where he says, okay, now I've got peace. Now I can wait. Listen, acceptance is not resignation. I'm not talking about you admit defeat. No, acceptance is an act of faith. Faith in the promises of God. Faith in the goodness of God. Listen, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what you're going through, wherever you are. Maybe what you've had to endure has literally made your body tremble. Maybe you feel helpless right now. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you even feel crushed. And you have a choice to make. You have a choice. You can choose to take matter into your own hands, which is what we often do. And you can say, look, I I at least want to help God out. Let me help him out. But deep down, you know that won't help. It won't take the pain away. It won't help the situation. It won't give you what you really want. All it will do is give you a false sense of security, a false sense of control. Right? uh, Abraham, 
you're going to have a child. Now wait for 25 years. And so Abraham and Sarah was like, well, let's help God out. Does God need help? Does he, is, he, is he asking, anybody, anybody, can you help me out? You can take matters into your own hands, but ultimately you'll be more devastated and disappointed than before. And so what's your alternative? Faith. Accepting what God is doing as you wait for his promises to unfold in his time and not yours. Many of you know this, but my childhood dream was to be a medical doctor. I loved medicine. I still do. I got to the point where I was at the University of Maryland and I sensed a call to, to preach, to pastoral ministry, and I didn't want to do that. I wrestled with it. It, it scared me, first of all, because I told God when I was a wee little kid that, uh, you know, I was a wee little man, like kind of Zacchaeus. Um, wee? Uh, I didn't want to do it because I hated speaking in front of people. And I, I told God as a kid, God, I'll do anything for you except speak in front of people. That's ironic. And I loved medicine. And so this calling was really, it, it, it actually ate me up inside. I was like, what are you talking about, God? You know this is my dream, right? I mean, literally, I am made for this kind of job. I am made for this. Like, everything about me is wired to be a medical doctor in my mind. And I even negotiated. I can do, let me go into, let me go into medicine and do both, medicine and ministry. And all my extended family was like, yeah, do both, do both. I came back home for a youth retreat, my first year of college, came back home for a youth retreat, and we were singing, of all things. You know, there's not a guy preaching, somebody needs to go into ministry. All we're doing is singing. And I literally fell to my knees. I was trembling, and I'm crying, and I literally felt sick to my stomach. I know exactly what Habakkuk is talking about here, because I lived it out. I was, I was scared to death. I'm sweating. My friends are asking if I'm okay. My pastor had to clear everybody out of the room, because I'm, this, I'm, I'm a total wreck. I was totally undone, and all I kept saying was, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm too scared. And my pastor's there like, what is going on? And I realized, in order to do what God was calling me to do, I had to give up my own dream. The dream that I had for my life. I had to accept his call in my life and not choose my call for my life, and it almost destroyed me. But after a few hours of that, I, I couldn't take it. I almost felt like, Jake, I'm wrestling with God. And I was like, okay, God, I'm, I'm done. That's it. I'll, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I'm, I'm like 18 years old, I think. I, had no, I didn't know what that meant. But I said, God, I, I'm letting go. I'm committed to following you no matter the cost. And you know what's strange? I spent hours fighting, unnerved, unsettled, and the moment that I gave, the moment I accept, the moment I relent, the moment that I commit is the moment I experience a peace in my life that I'd never experienced before. When the Bible says there's a peace that surpasses all understanding, I've, I felt it. Maybe not often in life, but I felt it then. And I walked out of that room thinking, what did I just sign up for? I don't know, but I feel great. I feel great. So weird. Can you quietly wait for what the Lord is doing in your life? Can you quietly accept what he's doing? Not because you like it or understand it, but because you trust the one who's in control. What do you need to accept today? 
Lesson number three. Trust in God your Savior. The last three verses of Habakkuk are some of the most beautiful in the Bible. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. There's a progression here in verse 17. Things, a progression of how bad things are. Losing figs, grapes, that'd be hard, but not the end of the world, not disastrous. You know, you get a flat tire, you get an accident, not the end of the world. But then he says, if, even though we lose all the olives and the fields yield no food, we get no crops. Now that would be devastating. Olive oil was used for lighting and cooking. Grain was the main source of food. And then he says, and if all the flocks be cut off and no herds in the stalls, now he's talking about ultimate economic disaster. No more meat to eat, no more wool to wear, no cattle to till, till the soil. Combined, the loss of these items would have spelled complete and utter disaster. It literally, he's describing what rock bottom would look like for them. This would be the end, God. This would be the ultimate end of, of uh, everything. If all these things failed, he said, this would be the worst of the worst. And that's what makes verse 18 so stunning. If he had said, if we experience a worldwide pandemic, and if we experience political polarization, the likes that we've never seen in generations, and if there's uh, claims of racial injustice, and people are fighting, and there's violence on both sides, if all that happens, and if I lose my job, and if the world goes crazy, and if our nation sees me going crazy, oh my goodness, then it'll all be over, God. Forget it. Let's move somewhere. Let's, let's just... No. If all that happens... Can you say verse 18? Yet. I'm telling you, yet. That's the word. It's maybe the most important word in this book. He has every reason not to rejoice. Every reason to complain. It's so easy to see what's wrong with our world and our lives, isn't it? Right? It is default for us to grumble and complain. It's natural. But it's not okay, actually. It's not okay. Habakkuk is no different than us. In fact, we know far more of God's salvation and his redemptive purposes than Habakkuk did. Right? We have Jesus. We have his life, death, and resurrection. We have the promises, all the promises that the gospel secures for us. He didn't have any of that. All he had was the power and majesty of God. He had the sovereignty of God, and yet he chooses joy. You see, joy is in many ways a choice. Galatians says joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something God gives us as a gift. We can either choose to allow that fruit to blossom or not. Habakkuk says, God, you can strip everything away. All my possessions, all the things I count valuable. But God, what I finally realize is that even if I lose everything, I can never lose you. 
That's what Habakkuk realizes here. That's the point of it all. That's the key. That's the secret. Listen, Christian, I don't know what you've lost. I know many of you lost loved ones, marriages, maybe a job, maybe your health, maybe a friendship, maybe a dream that has been lost. We've all lost something. This past year has been the hardest year of ministry for me. Several times I daydreamed about quitting. I didn't actually think about doing it, but I daydreamed of what it would be like to... Am I too, too, am I too old to go back to medical school? Could I try to swing that? This past year, in many ways, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I lost my joy. I couldn't get it back. And, I, and I, you know, Danny Beth and I were talking, and we have been praying, and I ended up reaching out to one of my seminary professors. And as we were discussing, and, and, and it was a help to kind of just talk about it, we actually ended up in Habakkuk. And I got to these verses, and it hit me. Verse 18 hit me. The word yet hit me. It was like glaring. I wanted sorrow to end and joy to come. But God was showing me joy and sorrow can happen together. You see, even if I lose everything, God is teaching, I can still have joy. And I know it sounds trite, and, 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 but it's not because it's true. And only those who've experienced this may really understand what I mean. But you'll never know Christ is all you, all you need until Christ is all you have. And when you have him, you have reason for joy. Joy in what? Not in your circumstances. We're not masochists here, right? We're not glutton for punishment. No. What could possibly give him this kind of joy? It's the Lord himself. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in God. The God of my salvation. Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. It's not just a feeling. because We don't always feel joy. It's got to be something deeper. And it is because the word joy here, the idea of joy means to treasure something, to value something, to savor something. We, we often think joy, rejoicing in the Lord comes after the sorrow, and yet Habakkuk is teaching rejoicing can happen at the same time as the sorrow. In the midst of the loss, he says, I will rejoice. Now, I'm not minimizing grief or sorrow. And you know me. If anything, I tend to err on lamenting and, and, and helping people walk through the, the, the hard path of, of grief and healing. There are times of loss when all you feel is the pain. Right? Job lost everything. He tears his, his clothes and he sits in sackcloth and ashes and he grieves. And it, what does it say? In all this, Job did not sin. It's not sin to experience grief and sorrow. We don't skip past that. But it is possible to get to a point where, where we can rejoice at the same time as we have sorrow. It's like the movie, the kids' movie, Inside Out. I think we've referenced it several times. I think, I guess, Pastor Brady and I love this movie. Uh, it's a great movie. It's about this little girl named Riley, and her family moves from Minnesota to San Francisco. And um, you're, basically, the whole movie is inside her head, where you're, each of her emotions are kind of personified. Uh, joy, sadness, anger, uh, fear, and disgust. 
and those five characters are kind of working together and make sure Riley stays on track, doesn't get too upset, too scared, and, and Joy's kind of the lead person. She wants to make sure everything about Riley's life is joyful, and, and in the move, something happens. She, she just can't, she loses her joy, and, and so Joy's trying to figure out, how do we get it all back? And, and at the end of it, you realize there's these five core memories that Riley has, and these are like what make up her personality. It makes her her, and they're protected. They're like special they got all these other memories, but there's these five core memories, and they're all joy ones. They're all gold, and, and, and they're special because they're, they're her core memories. And she realizes as she learns to process the move and how sad she was to leave her, her home behind and what she had before, her hockey, sorrow or, or sadness touches those core memories. And all of a sudden, she ends up having a core memory that's both gold and blue, joy and sadness at the same time. And you realize actually that that makes the memory deeper and better and stronger and she realizes it's okay in fact it's when those memories change that she begins to accept her new place in her new home you see sorrow can enhance our joy in the lord why because sorrow can drive you into deeper intimacy with god If you're waiting for joy to replace the sorrow or come after the sorrow, you'll be waiting your whole life. The joy of the Lord happens in the midst of the sorrow. In the midst of the sorrow. It's a choice, and you have to cultivate it. Look at verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. When God is your strength, when you find your identity on him, Habakkuk says he'll make you tread on the high places. In other words, he's giving up an image of a deer who's who's climbing up a mountain. Ever seen images like on the nature channels of deer, like literally like hanging on the side of a mountain and they're like, how do they even get up higher? It's crazy. It's dangerous. And it is. The higher up the mountain, the more dangerous it is. But ironically, the higher up the mountain, the safer it is. Because you're, if you're able to go higher, you have the high ground. And in the ancient times, whoever had the high ground was the safest. You can see your enemies. You're protected from your enemies. You're more secure and more free than ever when you are up on the mountain. Hard times have the ability to either drive us higher up the mountain or drive us down lower. Suffering, you know, suffering can actually make you softer and more tender. And I've seen this in people. As they go through suffering, they become more compassionate. They become more loving, more caring. Or suffering can make you cynical and bitter. And I've seen that too. Where people walked away. They get bitter at everybody else. They're they're so upset. Why? It's either driving them up higher or driving them down lower. Suffering can make you humble, more humble. You know what? I don't know everything. I thought I had life forgotten. Then this happened. Or suffering can make you more arrogant. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody experiences what I'm experiencing. I alone know this. That's arrogance. It destroys people. I've seen it happen to a number of people. It's, 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 it's heartbreaking. But when you learn to rejoice in the Lord, even in your suffering, you know what happens? God gives you the strength to go higher up the mountain where there's greater freedom and greater security because your security is in Him, not in your circumstances. Your freedom is in Christ, not in your job or your family or whatever else you've been looking to. That's why he says, I will take joy in God of my salvation, God my Savior. He knows judgment is coming, but, and yet he is convinced 
that God will still be his Savior. Isn't that interesting? He says the same thing when he recounts the Exodus in verse 13. He says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Habakkuk knew that in the midst of judgment, even in God's wrath, he is a God of mercy. That at his core, God saves. And that's why he remembers the Exodus, because it was, it was the greatest act of salvation ever. Well, don't we have an even greater act of salvation today? Habakkuk says, I can't think of anything greater than this story, and I'm going to re- keep telling it, and I'm going to keep retelling it till my joy fills me up and I get up the mountain. And we can say the same thing. We have a salvation story that's even better than the Exodus story. It's a greater Exodus story. It's the truer Exodus story. You see, the Exodus was God rescuing his people from the bondage in, uh, of, of, of slavery in Egypt. Not because of their good deeds, but because of his grace. And he rescues, he delivers them. That was their good news. What's our good news? We don't have Moses leading us out. We have a better Moses, don't we? Right? We have, have, Moses risked his life to liberate God's people from physical slavery. Jesus is the greater Moses who didn't just risk his life, but he gave his life to liberate us from evil and sin and death itself. The first Moses said, kill a lamb and, and, and put the blood on the doorpost and the Israelites can be forgiven of their sin. He'll pass over you. The, the angel of death will pass over you. But Jesus came as the greater Moses and he becomes the lamb of God who was slain for us and his own blood atones for our sin and declares us righteous before God. Don't you see we have greater reason to rejoice than Habakkuk even did? In Jesus, God came out to deliver his people, to save his anointed. Remember verse 13? For the salvation of your anointed. Well, how did God save his anointed? How does God do that? In order to to save his anointed, in order to, to save Jesus, he had to crush Jesus. You realize that? In order to save us as his people, he had to crush his own anointed one. In order for Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah we sang about earlier, to crush the head of the wicked one, the head of all wickedness at all, sin and death, not just Babylon, Jesus would have to come like us and live the life you and I should have lived but couldn't. And then he had to die the death you and I should have died by dying on the cross for our sin. Why? Because in order to crush sin without crushing us sinners, God had to crush his own son, his own anointed one. He had to be laid bare. You see, you have a a savior who never sinned, and yet he went on the cross for your sin. I don't care who you are, what you've done. I don't care how young you are or how old you are. We all deserved punishment for our sin, and Jesus took our punishment on the cross. He didn't deserve it, we did. He became our substitute. He died in our place. But he didn't stay dead, did he? You see, the exodus is, God brings them out of Egypt, but, but they're still struggling with sin. They still need atonement for sin. Jesus walks out of the tomb alive and says, listen, this is a once and for all thing. I died and I have risen and I will never die again. And I will live with you, be with you, be united to you, will never let you go. And now you can have joy because I will send you high up the mountain. 
That's what he does in the gospel. That's what he does. And we don't earn it. We don't do good works. We don't follow the Ten Commandments. All we simply say is, Jesus, I am a sinner. I need you to save me. I trust in you as my Savior. And he transforms you and he leads you and he shepherds you and he'll take you home to be with him. If you can come up with better news than that, let me know. Tell me something else where this is true, where your bad things ultimately turn out for good, Romans 8, 28, and where the good things in life can never be taken away, meaning your justification, your adoption, your union with Christ, never taken away. And thirdly, as Jonathan Edwards says, the best is yet to come. The best day of your life doesn't compare in comparison to what is to come. And the worst day of your life is just a reminder, oh my goodness, the best is yet to come. You see? You see, joy is possible. I'm talking about joy with maybe sorrow in your hearts, maybe even tears in your eyes, and you can still say, the Lord is my strength. Can you say that today? Can you say, the joy of the Lord is my strength? Would you pray with me? Lord, there's so much we don't know and don't understand. But what we do know is what you've revealed in your word. What we do know is what you've revealed through your son Jesus who lived in this world at a particular time and place. We thank you, first of all, that the gospel is good news because it's true. It happened. We thank you because in Jesus we can have eternal life, forgiveness, adoption, everything good. We thank you that those who are in Christ can, can be assured that the worst things that happen in life will, will always bend to your sovereign will for our good. And we thank you that joy, joy is possible. God, take our church higher up the mountain. Take us into deeper freedom and, and deeper security in you so that we're free to love others and not self-absorbed, so that we're free to serve others and not just thinking about ourselves, so that we're humble and compassionate people who are willing to look in the midst of the storm and not be afraid, but look in the midst of the storm and see you walking on the water and say, I believe, I believe you are good even when life is hard. God, do this for the glory of your name, for our church to be a church to be our shining light in this community, for one another, for your glory, as we remember what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.